Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to our uh, last session of the evening. Uh, not in any order of, uh, of priority. Of course, this is a very important topic. Uh, we're thrilled that uh, we have with us our, our moderator, uh, Ms. Jennifer Salon, uh, whose bio is, uh, is in the uh, program book. Uh, this session is entitled uh, Geopolitical Dynamics, Arab North Africa, the Maghreb, Syria, and Yemen. Uh, Ms. Salon. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, I hear it's been a great day so far, and I'm sorry to be joining you so late, but very delighted to be here. Um, my bio's not in the book, so I'll just give you a little bit about me. Um, my name is Jennifer Salen. I am a senior producer at Al Jazeera English. Up until very recently, I was the producer on the Riz Khan show. I think many of you are probably familiar with him. And I have just recently joined a new show on the network called The Stream, which is based all around social media. Um, we get our stories from Facebook, Twitter. So this has obviously been a big year for us um, with you know, the Arab uprisings and everything else going on in the world, Occupy Wall Street. It's been an exciting time to be working on a show that brings that in. Um, but before we start, I just want to say this today is a bit of a homecoming for me, and I'm very delighted to be here. I actually consider myself to be part of the work of the National Council and Dr. Anthony's work over all these many years. Um, at Al Jazeera, I have done like something that I'm very privileged to do, something that I love and is my passion, and I got this passion from the Model Arab League program. It was because of that program that I've had the career I've had, that I've been able to work on originally U.S. Arab relations and now in journalism where I spend a lot of my time focusing on the region. So for those of you that have always supported this work, I would just want to say thank you personally and that I'm so delighted to be here. And what Jenny's not sharing with you, ladies and gentlemen, is that she was uh, born in Wichita Falls, Texas. So, um... Yes, yeah, from a very small town in Texas to Washington, D.C. And, you know, being all over the Arab world, it's, it's been a pleasure and I have the people that support this work to thank, so thank you. Okay. So it's no secret to anyone that 2011 has been a remarkable year, one that I thought I would never see following the region and the developments. I never thought I would see the kind of changes we've witnessed in the past few months. We still have two months to go. I'm just wondering what that's going to bring us. In the last week alone, we've seen the death of Colonel Gaddafi, elections in Tunisia, carnage in Syria and Yemen continuing, and just this morning, the UN Security Council voted unanimously to end the NATO operation in Libya. Tomorrow, we're expecting more demonstrations in Cairo against the Supreme Command of Armed Forces, or SCAF. So anything could happen, and I, I think we're all well aware of that this is a very exciting time to be watching the region, but it's also a very uncertain time. So amidst, amidst the euphorian backdrop of these very real changes, I know the IMF is warning of an economic downturn in the countries of Arab uprisings. Egypt and Tunisia particularly are facing a sharp drop in growth that is going to be taking place well into next year. Uh, Egypt's finance minister has said that the panacea of subsidies has to stop um, and that the government simply cannot maintain them with its current budget. But as many of us know, Egypt is a country of great poverty with many of its population living on less or a little more than a dollar a day. These cuts are going to be very difficult to implement and Egypt's not alone. The uncertainty sparked by the uprisings on top of the global financial crisis has caused unemployment to climb and dried up investment. 
well, between the political and economic questions, it's the people who are always caught in the middle of this. As a journalist, this is what I'm most interested in, the people stories. I know many of you um, are analysts of the region and are interested in what all this change is going to mean, not only for the people on the ground, but for us and people in other parts of the world. So it's going to take some very astute leadership to maneuver these obstacles. And one of the key questions we want to look at here today is who's going to be making those decisions. We're going to be having new governments in many of these countries. And how are they going to be basing those decisions? On what are they going to be basing those decisions? And what will they mean for the political and economic futures, not only of the people in the region, but for those of us that care so much about them and, and want to be involved um, with them in this change? So today we have a very distinguished panel to answer this, these questions and many more that I'm sure you might have. Dr. Najib Ayeshi is of Tunisian descent and is the founder and president of the Maghrib Center, a nonprofit 501c3 organization focusing on creating bridges of understanding between the U.S. and the Maghrib, as well as educating the public about the concerns of the region. The Maghrib Center is made up of U.S. scholars and development experts who work with their regional counterparts to find creative solutions to the changing needs of Maghreb communities. Dr. Aishi is a frequent lecturer on North African issues and has taught at George Washington University and at the State Department's Foreign Service Institute. He holds a doctorate in political science from the Sorbonne. Here today to tackle Syria and Yemen for us is a face that I know is familiar to many of you from previous conferences, Mr. Christopher Blanchard. He's a Middle East policy analyst at the Congressional Research Service, the public policy research arm of the United States Congress. And as most of you know, the CRS puts out in-depth, non-biased reports, which is difficult in Washington, that America's elected leaders rely on, so, rely on for so many of the critical decisions they make, or at least we hope they do. Um, tackling Libya for us today, because there are so many changes, we're lucky to have two distinguished guests. Rhonda Fahmi Hudom is an internationally recognized expert in the Middle East and North African affairs with particular focus on Egypt, Libya, and Tunisia. In 2003, she launched Fahmi Hudom International, a strategic consulting pr firm providing critical advice and counsel to Fortune 500 companies, governments, media organizations, and private sector entities with interests in the Middle East and North Africa. Previously, she was appointed by President George W. Bush to serve as the Associate Deputy Secretary of Energy. From 1995 to 2001, she served as counselor to Senator Spencer Abraham of Michigan, where she was credited with shaping many pieces of legislation that affected U.S. interests abroad, including financial assistance to U.S. allies in the Middle East. Ms. Fahmi Hudom received her Juris Doctor from Georgetown University Law Center. And also joining us to discuss Libya is Dr. Issam Omesh. He is director of the Libyan Emergency Task Force and political director of the Libyan Council of North America. He was recently appointed as, a, as the Libyan Embassy's liaison to the Libyan-American community. Dr. Omesh is a graduate of Georgetown University, where he earned degrees in international relations and biology. A physician and the chief of general surgery division at Inova Alexandria Hospital, Dr. Omesh has just returned from a three-week medical mission to the western mountains of Libya, where he was also able to visit a newly liberated Tripoli. Dr. Michelle Dunn will be joining us shortly. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar, she is the director of the Atlantic Council's Rafi Kariri Center for the Middle East. She served in the White House on the National Security Council staff, on the State Department's policy planning staff, and in its Bureau of Intelligence and Research, and as a diplomat in Cairo and Jerusalem. She co-chairs the Working Group on Egypt, a bipartisan group of experts established in February to mobilize U.S. government attention to the forces of change in that country. Dr. Dunn received her Ph.D. in Arabic language and linguistics from Georgetown University. And I think um, we're going to start where everything started in Tunisia <laughs> with Dr. Najib Aishi. Dr. Najib. Thank you. Is this... 
Can you hear me? Yes, I guess. Well, thank you very much. It's, a, it's really a, an honor to, to speak, to talk about Tunisia, and it's quite a challenge because everything indeed started there. By everything, I mean the revolution, the Arab Spring. And um, I understand I have eight to nine minutes, so and I've been told that I should provide the audience with uh, a few facts about Tunisia itself. It's a, it's a, because it's little known in the United States. It's a small country of about 10 and a half million inhabitants. It's ethnically and religiously homogeneous, unlike other, other neighboring countries. This is not a tribal society. It is not ethnically divided. This is to answer someone from the audience who asked me that question a few times um, <clears throat> early on. Um, and Tunisia benefits from, uh, we can say that Tunisia is what we call a nation state. The process of building a state in Tunisia started in the, uh, in the uh, 19th century uh, by the various rulers and reformers. Uh, there is in Tunisia a state, a government that even during the revolution, after that functioned, that worked, that delivered services and so on. Um, so, and Tunisians are all um, Sunni Muslims of the Malikite rite, uh, al-Madhab al-Maliki in Arabic, uh, with a small Jewish community which has been there for centuries. After independence from France, Tunisia was a, a French protectorate from 1881 to 1956. It became a republic. Uh, previously it was uh, ruled by a bey, a monarch, uh, independent but formally under Ottoman certainty. The first president of the Republic of Tunisia, Habib Bourguiba, the father of modern Tunisia, was fiercely secular. And he adopted the French version of secularism called laïcité, which is, uh, it's a, what's perceived as quite excessive. This excessive secularism is considered as having contributed to the emergence of the Islamist movements in Tunisia, incidentally, in the, eight, in the 80s. Uh, it's the same kind of secularism that inspired Kemal Ataturk in Turkey. Bourguiba was an enlightened autocrat who uh, remained close to the West throughout his career uh, and instituted a, a one-party political system uh, and invested heavily in education and promoted uh, women's rights. Women currently, thanks to Bourguiba, enjoy practically equal rights with men, uh, with the exception of inheritance. But this is being under discussion and it might not remain so for, for the in the foreseeable future. And he endeavored to modernize and develop Tunisia's economy, uh, an, an effort that was pursued under Ben Ali, who succeeded him through a, a bloodless coup for senility. Bourguiba was too old and was, and ben Ali, he brought Ben Ali to deal with the, the growing uh, challenges posed by the Islamists. And Ben Ali took advantage of that to depose him and replace him. Uh, and he kept the, uh, the, the, the modernizing uh, uh, work efforts of Bourguiba, including the economy. So he kept modernizing the economy for, for some time. Uh, and Tunisia, for many years, for the past 10 to 15 years, enjoyed something like 5% of economic growth, despite limited resources. This is not an oil producer country. There is a little bit of oil, but not much. The economy is rather based on tourism, phosphates, agri-food products, and light manufacturing. 
however, the relative wealth that was generated by Tunisia's economy left behind large segments of the society, especially in the hinterland of the country, while coastal areas benefited much more from public and private investments, uh, especially in the tourism sector. So the combination of economic development and widespread education contributed to the creation of a relatively large middle class in Tunisia and also produced many college um, graduates that the economy eventually could not absorb, at least the economy, the, the way economic development policy were, were, were uh, the kind of economic development policy that were chosen were not able to provide enough jobs for all these young people, especially those who live, the, the, those who are not well connected, basically, who live in the interland, uh, and there are quite a few of them. But they also have an education. And that's that. Uh, ben Ali ruled Tunisia for 23 years until recently, and he relied on, um, I think it's a well-known fact now, even by those who don't know much about Tunisia, he instituted a police state. Tunisia was truly the example of a, a police state. Uh, he cracked down on, on all opposition, Islamist and, and, and secular. Uh, but in spite of a heavy-handed crackdown by his security apparatus, uh, he, he, kept, he was consistently challenged, his, his grip of power, on power was consistently challenged by uh, human rights groups, by the union and women groups. So the, uh, with the, 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 his regime became increasingly corrupt with time until, uh, so the combination of, I think, the, the impact of the worldwide economic crisis that increased the number of unemployed youth. Uh, the fact that he himself became more and more corrupt, more and more authoritarian, uh, this has triggered an uprising on the part of young unemployed people in the interland primarily, but soon they were joined by uh, other young people from the coastal areas from the, and, and uh, the union supported them. And uh, eventually the middle class took it to the streets. Yes, they went out and, and they demonstrated against Ben Ali asking him to leave, uh, telling him that they've had it with his 25, 23 years of, of autocracy. Uh, with the pressure from, from that kind of pressure, indeed, uh, pushed him to leave Tunisia and he found refuge in Saudi Arabia. He was granted asylum there. In, uh, on the 15th, January the 15th of 2010, no, this year, 11, sorry. Uh, <clears throat> what happened after that, the, uh, if you're interested in knowing how we went through the transition, a caretaker government was, was uh, asked to, uh, to run Tunisia, to administer Tunisia. He, the constitution said, says that when the president is, cannot uh, uh, work effectively when the, uh, is enabled to perform his duties, the, uh, the Speaker of the Parliament should step in and take over, which happened, and he, 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 uh, he nominated a Prime Minister. He kept the former Prime Minister, Ben Ali's Prime Minister. The first transition government was composed of the, the previous members of the previous governments, essentially. This didn't work. Uh, there was tremendous uh, pressure from, from the street, from those young people who started the revolution uh, to the point that they had to, to, to come out with, to designate a new transition government. This one was composed of technocrats, of independent personalities, and some members of the opposition uh, in Tunisia. The, um, and and they, are, they run the government for some 10, 10 months 
until recently, and they organized uh, a elections for a constituent assembly that uh, the elections took place last Sunday. <coughs> and um, I'm sure you've heard that the Islamists uh, were the um, where the, uh, the, the, the NADA party, which is the, uh, Islamist, the name of the Islamist party in Tunisia, uh, won uh, a majority of the seats in the parliament, uh, immediately followed by three to four secular, three center-left, center-right, center-left uh, secular parties. So the NADA has the majority of the votes, of the seats, but not the absolute majority. Therefore, they cannot govern alone. They have to work within a coalition. They have to bring about a coalition so they can, they can, they can govern uh, until new elections in a year or so. Until, well, after drafting the constitution, a new constitution and calling for new elections, parliamentary and, and presidential elections in more or less a year from now. So this is where we are. Should I go? Keep, or should uh, we reserve some? If you want to go for a minute. For a minute. Yeah. I, I anticipate questions about ANADA, of course, and who are they, how did they get there, I mean, and, and we can talk about that later, maybe a little more, than, but I can tell you that they have been around for some time. Uh, they are deeply rooted in, in Tunisian society, as a matter of fact. They have been, they've been around for some time. They, ben Ali, Bourguiba cracked down on them, but Ben Ali was, crackdown was very harsh. Uh, they were arrested by the thousands, they were tortured, they were put in jail, many of them went into exile. So uh, why did they, the Tunisians vote for them? <clears throat> well, there's this kind of sympathy that they benefited from because they went through all this harshness. Uh, also, they were reassuring. Uh, they, they did not, they don't want to install a caliphate in Tunisia. They don't want to install a, an Islamist state. That's what they say. They don't want to roll back women's rights also. But they're reassuring, you know, the Tunisians, like many people in the, Middle East, in the Arab world, Muslim world, are religious people. They're becoming more and more religious. So uh, <clears throat> uh, that's, uh, the Islamists also appeal to folk piety and poli populist politics. Uh, they do elsewhere, but they do that in Tunisia, and that, that paid off. And they, were, they appear to be different from the previous political, the, politi the other political elite, maybe less corrupt. Uh, they would be able to, uh, that's in very, very broadly what, <laughs> why they've been so, the, the appeal, what does the appeal for another come from? Excellent, thank you. Um, Christopher Blanchard, if we can hear from you now. Son. Thank you, everyone. Uh, special thanks to Dr. Anthony and the Board of the National Council for inviting me back uh, to this year's conference. It's my pleasure to be here again. Um, my remarks and answers today will be made in my personal capacity and do not reflect the views uh, of the Library of Congress or the Congressional Research Service. Time is short, uh, and our organizers have asked me to cover events both in Syria and Yemen, uh, where two of the most complex Uprisings have emerged in the last year. Uh, I, uh, I think uh, there may be a door prize waiting for me. Uh, but uh, in, in all seriousness, um, you know, the, the, uh, the task at hand here pales uh, in comparison to what the people of those two countries are facing uh, and the, the, the threats uh, to, their, to their daily security. Um, 
these countries presented long-term policy challenges and created sharp debates uh, prior to the events of the last 10 months. Uh, and now both appear to be teetering on the brink of a broader conflict. Uh, in order to address these complexities within a short amount of time, I'll briefly identify some key actors, summarize current positions uh, and recent events, and discuss a few core challenges and options for each. Um, in Syria, as you know, the government of uh, Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian military and security forces continue to confront a broad national protest movement that's demanding, first, an end to the violent and uh, broad security crackdown the government is perpetrating. The opposition remains divided in its demands with regard to dialogue, political reform, uh, and regime change, although uh, is united in its calls uh, mostly for President Assad to step down. Um, again, President Assad and his supporters are all but intransigent in the face of those calls um, and about uh, an immediate opening of dialogue. They're accusing the opposition increasingly of using terrorist tactics and armed force and also uh, being agents of, of foreign agendas, uh, things that we heard uh, in other conflicts, uh, Libya in particular. Uh, in recent weeks, the government has renewed efforts to coordinate mass demonstrations to show support for itself um, in an attempted show of strength. But overall, we see a shift away from the mixed approach that the regime took uh, early in 2011 uh, toward a confrontational approach uh, towards protesters responding to defections from military forces uh, with force uh, and directly targeting prominent activists that are identifying themselves with emerging opposition coalitions. Across Syria this week, opposition activists have supported a call for a general strike. But overall, opinions appear to be darkening concerning the prospects for dialogue and a peaceful resolution to the conflict. Local coordination councils remain active in many areas and constitute an informal network for the opposition. Uh, however, as I mentioned to date, uh, a nationally coordinated and unified opposition has not fully emerged. Rather, two coalition groups, one based in Syria and the other operating mainly uh, in neighboring Turkey, are seeking to shape the political agenda of the opposition. Uh, the Syrian National Council uh, uh, emerged in, uh, first informally in August, but then formally uh, in October in Turkey and brings together a range of external activists along with representatives of the Damascus Declaration Forces, the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and the Syrian Revolution General Commission. They've distinguished themselves most recently by calling for the immediate protection of Syrian civilians, uh, which many uh, inside Syria and internationally are uh, you know, interpreting as calls for a, a more forceful intervention, if not military intervention. Um, they also have a strong belief that dialogue with the Assad government is not possible or likely to be fruitful. The National Coordination Commission for the Forces of Democratic Change is the internal uh, uh, coordination body for the, the Syrian opposition. It consists mainly of leftist groups, um, Kurdish activists, and organizers uh, who are associated with the issuance of the 2005 Damascus Declaration. They've distinguished themselves most recently uh, in their categorical opposition to external military intervention and uh, for maintaining the prospect of dialogue with the regime, um, um, of course, following an end to the use of the force against civilians. Um, as I mentioned, reports increasingly suggest that dissident military personnel uh, and officers acting under the organization of what they're referring to as the Free Syrian Army or the Free Officers Movement are actively targeting government security uh, personnel in, uh, with small arms, uh, grenades, rocket-propelled grenades, and other uh, uh, low-level attacks. Uh, these forces, uh, active forces, are rumored to number several hundred. 
um, but precise verifiable estimates are not available and reports about uh, larger numbers of defections from uh, military units uh, are widespread. Uh, in fact, thousands of military personnel uh, may have defected during the uprising thus far. Uh, as is obvious, uh, the United States, the Arab League, Turkey, Iran, Russia, the European Union, and China are the key external actors in the crisis. Uh, the joint veto of the proposed United Nations Security Council resolution uh, on Syria signaled important divisions among these parties, particularly within uh, the permanent five members of the Security Council. More recently, Arab League engagement uh, with President Assad and his government has resumed in the hope of achieving a ceasefire uh, and opening a national dialogue. And as I indicated, Syrian opposition groups remain split on the question. Um, in the interest of giving due time to Yemen, I'll, I'll save challenges and options in Syria for the discussion. I know uh, there are likely to be questions about that. Um, in Yemen, um, President Ali Abdullah Saleh's return to the country has coincided with a sharpening of the confrontation there between his government and security forces uh, controlled by his family and a loose alliance uh, of political rivals uh, on the other side, including the Al-Ahmar family, General Ali Mohsen uh, and uh, his first armored division uh, and the opposition joint meeting parties coalition. The struggle between these two factions is now overshadowing the popular opposition movement that emerged early in the year uh, and that was rooted in a new wave of youth activism inspired by regional developments uh, and a corresponding reinvigoration of established opposition groups. On the periphery, uh, Yemen's three persistent civil conflicts continue to complicate matters further uh, they threaten the unity of the state, and they're creating arenas for political rivals, both internal and external, uh, to seek advantages. In Yemen's north, supporters of the al-Houthi movement in recent months have clashed with opposition supporters from the Islaf party uh, and tribal uh, pro-government tribal elements uh, um, in al-Jawf province. Uh, in the south, southern independence activists have declared solidarity with northern protesters, but have also increased their uh, organization and activities uh, with mass protests that were in the news this week, uh, only the most recent example of that. Uh, in the government, uh, governorate of Abiyan, uh, uh, hundreds, hundreds of Islamist militants, uh, many of whom identify or, or are affiliated with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, or its um, uh, sort of new on-the-ground uh, format or organization called Ansar al-Sharia. Um, they've attempted to seize con control uh, of the Wadi Bana region, uh, which includes uh, the towns of Jar and Zinjibar, tying down members of several Yemeni army brigades numbering in the thousands. Those army brigades have been all but uh, abandoned by the central government um, uh, and have faced difficulty in, in combating a smaller number of, of al-Qaeda affiliates. Um, in light of increased fighting and shelling of civilian areas in the capital and other cities recently, calls for an immediate resolution uh, of Yemen's conflict have increased. This is evident in the adoption of Security Council Resolution 2014, which calls, among other things, for a settlement agreement on the basis of the GCC agreement negotiated in the spring of 2011. Uh, at present, President Saleh has once again stated his willingness to sign the GCC agreement, something that he's reneged on several times thus far this year, um, while some reports are now suggesting that he has submitted a series of amendments designed to postpone his resignation until the election of a new president, uh, conditions that would be all but unacceptable to uh, the Yemeni opposition groups that have emerged. The United States is now calling for an immediate transfer of power in line with the United Nations Security Council resolution and the GCC plan.
overall the situation in Yemen is characterized by uh, a sort of familiar story. Uh, it's a balance between um, short-term needs of external powers uh, versus the long-term risks of state collapse and failure. Um, the difficulty at present is that Yemen's uh, persistent zero-sum political conflict uh, between the, the uh, two main political factions in North Yemen uh, is now uh, preventing uh, any resolution either of the, sh the, the short-term needs uh, and is actually exacerbating uh, the likelihood that the international community and the Yemeni people will face the worst uh, of the long-term risks. Thank you. Rhonda. Thank you. Um, I'd like to address the uh, relationship with Libya, and particularly the United States relationship with Libya, from a historical perspective. And then Dr. Ramesh is going to pick it up, I think, during the revolutionary period, because he's been on the ground there recently and has some terrific real-time information. Um, in the interest of transparency, my role in Libya actually comes from my professional experience there. Um, as Jenny mentioned, I served in the Bush administration from 2001 through 2003. And so I saw some of the inside mechanics about how the rapprochement came about with Libya. But after I left the Bush administration, I was actually employed by the government of Libya to help them solidify the relationship with the United States and actually come out of the cold and come back into the international community. After I completed that task, I then took on the task of representing international companies in Libya. And so today I'd like to talk a little bit about the historic relationship and how we got to where we are today, and also about some of the concerns that businesses may have in Libya pre and post the revolution. So historically, without going through too much history, I think we all know through the 1980s and the 1990s, Li Libyan-United States relationship was one of a pariah relationship. Uh, Libya, Libya certainly haven't taken on through its leadership acts of terrorism throughout the world, but in particular there were many cases of terrorism that affected U.S. citizens, including, many of you may remember, of course, Pan Am 103. They blew up UTA, Egypt Air. They also had a hand in the LaBelle discotheque bombing along with other international acts of terrorism. Of course, then causing both the United Nations as an international body and the United States to impose sanctions. Of course, the UN sanctions were multilateral. The U.S. sanctions were bilateral. We then moved into a period of what I call thawing. And this was, in, you know, you have to hearken back into your memory. This was post 9-11. The United States was in a totally different mindset when it came to its strategic relationships in the Middle East. We were hell-bent on catching Al-Qaeda and destroying them, and anyone in the region who would cooperate with us was, in essence, valuable. And Libya fell into that category. Many people do not realize that Gaddafi actually stepped forward rather quickly after 9-11 and offered his cooperation because he was very good at pushing down Al-Qaeda, particularly in Libya, because simply and purely they were competition to his power. In that period from 2001 through 2003, the British were actually heavily negotiating with the Libyans on a variety of issues, but in particular trying to bring them in back into the international community, which the Libyans pretty much wanted. It was only in these contexts of negotiations that in the end the British brought the Americans in, because at some point the Libyans were ready 
to put forth a compensation package for some of their terrorist acts, including Pan Am 103, but also in the context of these negotiations, they had offered to give up their WMDs. Now, some people will say it was because of Iraq. Harken back, we invaded Iraq, right, in the spring of 2003, under the auspices that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Some say Gaddafi didn't want to be next. Whatever the case was, it was in those negotiations that the Libyans voluntarily came forward and gave up the WMDs. It was in the fall of 2003, and it was Bush administration diplomats who negotiated that deal. Now, the often talked about deal is talked about in the terms of WMD relinquishment. What really happened was that the Libyans said, we're going to give up our WMDs, but the United States, you cannot push for regime change. And we made that deal. The United States made that deal. Did we know that Gaddafi violated people's human rights and was bad to his people? Absolutely. But when you look at what our strategic importance and, and, and uh, priorities were, our priorities were to rid rogue nations of weapons of mass destruction, and we cut that deal. Now, somewhere in that period of thawing, moving into rapprochement, there was what I call a period of lost in translation. So in those negotiations, somehow the Libyans believed that as a result of giving up their WMDs, they would all of a sudden be accepted by the international community, and that somehow, magically, they would be taken off the U.S. list of terrorist countries. In fact, we did remove those WMDs from Libya, and they were, they had with WMDs, and in fact, they were put on display at the Department of Energy's facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, for all to see. And this is what I start to think is the beginning of the problematic relationship. And I like to describe the relationship as a cold marriage between a husband and wife who only stay together for the sake of the kids. We then moved into what was called the goal, moving the goalpost period, when through 2004 through 2006, and I worked intently on this, the Libyans thought that they should be removed from the terrorism list. They were doing everything the United States wanted them to do. They were cooperating on 9-11. They were cooperating on intelligence matters. In fact, we had some flights going directly from Guantanamo to Tripoli, and you can decide what, what it was that was going on there. Um, and so they were also cooperating when it came to al-Qaeda and stomping out al-Qaeda in North Africa, in the region. And so the Libyans really didn't understand why they were not being taken off the, 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 the terrorism list. And I call this the moving of the goalpost period because when I would go and meet with administration officials and say, okay, tell me why Libya is not coming off the list, they would give me five reasons. And they would go something like this. Well, first, they're not cooperating enough in Iraq. They are causing us problems in the Palestinian territory. They tried to assassinate then Crown Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. And then when the Saudis forgave the Libyans, you kind of would think that would have fallen off the list. And what happened was that list of five kept changing. And then something else would get inserted. And then something else would be pulled back. And so the Libyans became very frustrated by this, by this process. Mixed in with that, of course, was the ongoing and continuing negotiations of many of the lawsuits and the financial compensations for Americans and their families who were killed in those terrorist acts. We then moved into the last period, which was off the list. So finally, in 2006, through a great deal of back and forth and disagreement within the Bush administration itself, President Bush, through the declaration of Secretary Condoleezza Rice, removed Libya from the terrorist list. 
From my perspective and from most foreign policy watchers, it was a huge achievement. It was the first time a terrorist country had ever been removed from the terrorist list through diplomatic means. Okay? Iraq was moved from the terrorism list. Why? Because we went to war with Iraq. And that's how we got them off the, the, the list, just because we invaded Iraq. So it was a huge foreign policy achievement, but you nearly heard a Bush administration official speak about it. It was not talked about a success. It was never discussed openly. And it was almost, again, like this cold marriage, or in essence, a man who's hiding a secret girlfriend in the closet and doesn't want to bring her out. So the Libyans' attitude was too little too late. The Americans were extremely uncomfortable with the relationship. Why? Because Gaddafi was still in power. Because we cut a deal. We allowed the regime to continue. And so what happened was we moved into a post-Bush period into the Obama administration where they, in essence, inherited the Bush administration policy. What to do, what to do. Similar uncomfortableness. And you saw it again with the issues that raised itself, with the compensation for the families of Pan Am 103. You saw the embassies opened between two countries, but then you saw the release of Abdel Basid al-Megrahi and his heroes welcome back to Libya, complicating this relationship again. And then, of course, you saw the spectacular antics of Gaddafi at the United Nations, which embarrassed the Obama administration and put them in a very, very difficult position. Flash forward into the revolutionary period, and Dr. Omesh is going to cover this, but I look at some of the issues with respect to that period even. The first and most important decision that was made, relatively without disagreement, was the NATO military action, which I think the United States took the right move at and stepped forward on that. And also the Arab League deserves a great deal of, um, of kudos for their actions, which were quite historic. But if you remember, there was also this difficult time period about recognition of the Transitional Council. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, I don't miss those days. I mean, how frustrating it must have been for the Transitional Council to have to go through this again, where the Obama administration was dragging their feet on recognition. There's also the issue, and it continues today, of the frozen assets. So, you know, it's this difficult, difficult relationship, and my hope is in the future, and I hope in moving forward, this relationship becomes more of a warm marriage, if you will, because the husband and wife go to marriage counseling. Um, as far as the future outlook goes, I want to touch upon three different sectors, energy, defense, and business. What I foresee, and I worked a lot in the oil and gas sector, I foresee a very bright future. Uh, frankly, when I was at the Department of Energy, our intelligence on the Libyan energy supply was not very good. Uh, we really didn't know what they had. As, you know, from there until now, they're certainly, they were up to about 1.6 million barrels a day. I predict that they will get back up to that fairly quickly, more quickly than most analysts predict. And the reason why is the Libyans have always run their national oil company quite well. Uh, also, there's been very minimal damage to the infrastructure there, and they were very, very good at up and running, if you will, when the revolution broke out. And as you heard earlier today, I think there's a bright future there. I know the Libyans were extremely interested in solar, nuclear, water desalinization. So I think there'll be a bright future there as well. I'm going to make a little prediction for all of you folks who are in the defense industry, and this is based upon some knowledge that I have from previous uh, occurrences, but I know that AFRICOM, which many of you know is the joint command for Africa, um, is looking for a new home. Over the years, AFRICOM actually visited Tripoli twice to take a look at the geopolitical 
location of Tripoli. It's extraordinary when you think about it and look at it in a map. But there was a great deal of hesitation, as you can imagine, by the Libyan government to welcome in US, the U.S. military, particularly after the history, frankly, in Iraq, and again, hearkening back to the cold marriage that the two countries had. Um, along with these visits and the search for a new home by AFRICOM and the geostrategic lo location, of course, we have the old Air Force Base, Wheelis Air Force Base, which actually, you know, is still there and still has its golf course on it, but that could be revived easily. Um, and I do think that, keep your eye out for that. I think that that would be productive for the military to take another look at Libya, particularly in light of the Libyans' appreciation of NATO action in Libya during the revolution and the U.S. extraordinary role within NATO. And last but not least, on the business end, for those companies that tried to do business prior to the revolution, there were difficulties, and these difficulties still remain, and I would you know, certainly want to see the Libyans do something to help develop a more transparent business environment that includes who to do business with, to actually, you know, be respectful of many of the laws in the United States that are required for companies to do business in a foreign country, including the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. The questions of who will sign a contract, who will actually pay for that contract, what government official has the authority to move forward on these contracts, and of course, the all-encompassing transparency and rule of law. But as I mentioned, I am very hopeful from a future and certainly looking forward to Dr. Ramesh's comments on what's going on on the ground right now. Thank you. Before Dr. Ramesh starts, I'd like to just remind everyone, you can write your questions down on those wonderful note cards and we can take them up here. Um, people are going around to collect them. So if you have your questions, just jot them down and we can get them to our panelists. Dr. Ramesh. Thanks, Rhonda, for a wonderful um, beginning. Um, I'd like to, in fact, take uh, Rhonda's lead in moving on the discussion. And, um, and certainly what happened in Libya in the past eight months is uh, nothing short of historic and one that has um, come at the heel of, of many other significant developments in the region. Nonetheless, the, uh, the Libyan uh, experiment in and of itself was... Uh, was quite tremendous, and, and for, uh, for Libyans as well as uh, for the world watching, it, it uh, has um, culminated into uh, uh, an experiment that has, has every reason to be successful and, and much to be looking forward in the future, while at the same time facing a great deal of challenges. This is a time when the international community has come together uh, the leadership of the U.S. Uh, was certainly evident uh, and, and uh, the beginning and certainly very palpable towards uh, or throughout the whole uh, ordeal. Uh, the Arab uh, League has played a central role in driving the process and, uh, and of course, the U.N. has been uh, the place where all of this action has, has come together and, and synthesized towards uh, what we saw. Uh, along with it, we saw the, uh, uh, the, 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 the unique role that certain nations have played, certainly uh, partners in the Arab world as well as uh, nations in, in Europe and the likes. And then, at, 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 and, and at the, and, uh, with all this, you, you saw a, a whole population, a whole people uh, rise. And, and, and while they attempted everything to do peacefully at the, at the beginning, they were brave enough to, to face uh, the bullets 
and, 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 uh, the, and the armament that was directed against them eventually having uh, been forced to take it on and certainly rose to the challenge to be able to defeat Gaddafi's militias and, and, and be able to affect the real change on the ground. So many factors came in together in, in, in this uh, historic uh, revolution, if you may, and, and these events. And so, you know, the, 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 the challenges are vast and, and, and what we construct of what is happening in Libya as we want to move, move forward, certainly uh, from a geopolitical perspective or, or, a, or a strategic perspective as we want to sure, ensure the security of the region and ensure the success, of, uh, the continued success of the Arab Spring, as well as look at strategic uh, uh, goals there and be able to safeguard them and build the partnerships that will allow uh, the U.S. and, and its uh, partners around the world to uh, help the, the Libyan experiment move forward. I think one of the things that we can look at currently is what are the priorities of Libyans that have come thus far. Uh, certainly the death of Gaddafi, albeit brutal and, 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 and graphic in many ways, um, has brought some closure to the agony and to the, and to the, and to the struggle of the Libyan people and has allowed them uh, a sense of uh, uh, you know, uh, relief, if you may, and, and closure that allows them to face the future and say what is coming next. And it's very important for us as international players or as folks in the U.S. and from a Libyan-American perspective to look at what is it that poses the major challenges for this experiment to continue to succeed if we all agree that it has many ingredients that make it likely to succeed. And I, I just wanted to highlight these because these will take on a, a life of their own in terms of what is it that we can do, what is it that we can bring forth uh, in that uh, dynamic to be able to uh, see uh, success and continued progress in that region. Certainly the unity of the nation has been in question and unifying the country and, and being able to forge structures that will allow for that unity to be sustained is something that's been very critical. And I think for those who have studied Libya across the history and during the current events, recognize that there are uh, some uh, um, uh, issues that may, uh, some fault lines that may lead to some disunity. But the fact of the matter is that despite uh, the, 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 the challenge of this revolution and, and the after effect, uh, I think you know, we can look at these factors, we need to understand them in how they will affect the dynamic that will come afterwards, but I don't think the unity of the, of the nation is, is uh, in peril. The, the other challenge that, that is, I think, more uh, timely and more important is how to govern and how to move on with the, 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 the governance structure. The TNC, although has been a very uh, effective body in, in, in unifying the Libyan people around it and in being able to uh, forge pathways with the international community and allow for for, for, the, for the, you know, the events that took place to, to coalesce into a uh, focus on, on the best for Libya, they themselves have struggles within themselves in their ability to remain uh, effective and in their ability to handle the challenges that are thrown at them. The, the, their declaration currently to call for a national congress, which is an expansion of the current membership to be able to be inclusive of as many of the areas of Libya is something that we need to watch very closely and, and really allow for its success in whichever way we can. Of course, that's ultimately up to them. But that's very important because that's 
the, 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 the body that will be able the one to, to bring forth the interim government that will be the caretaker. And it's the same body that will be uh, commissioned to produce the committee on the constitution that will draft and hopefully forge the, 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 the next phase for Libya. They have expressed their constant commitment to the very principles that we want to see in Libya, the rule of law, human rights, you know, uh, inclusion, the rights of minorities and women, and on and on and on. And I, I think their genuine commitment to that is, is palpable as well, and I don't think we, don't, we need to be concerned about it. I think what we need to be concerned about is making sure that that process, giving them enough support to be able to see it happen sooner than later, because the longer that process goes, the more likely we will see potential uh, side conflicts. Um, they, they have the, the challenge of security, and consolidating the, the militaries and the militias, if you may, or, or the, the, what they call the Saraya or the, or the, or the revolutionaries. Uh, there's a lot of weapons on the, on the ground. There's a lot of difficulties in bringing forth unity, although we see patterns that are uh, uh, helpful. We've seen militias that have handed over their weapons. We've seen folks that have come under you know, central command, if you may, uh, submitting to the, to the, to the uh, defense department, if you may, or the security apparatus that is being built by the TNC. Nonetheless, uh, the fault lines in that dynamic is, is, is quite a bit, and I think, I think we, the, the, we, we can't uh, uh, leave that issue alone until we're, we're reassured that, in fact, that cons consolidation is happening along with it, you know, getting rid of weapons, and being able to sustain the support that they need to ensure that the other elements of national security are being dealt with. You know, border security is an issue, the issue of uh, decommissioning of weapons and, and the post-combat you know, military and army building, things that the nation will need. In addition to that, there is the issue of national reconciliation. Um, Gaddafi has ruled for a long time, and, uh, and, 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 and there is uh, a lot of legacy, uh, good or bad, in many ways, mostly bad, of course, that has still haunts many Libyan people and, and, the, and, the, and the blood that shed during the, the revolution and, and the challenges that come with this will actually uh, require an effective and an immediate re national reconciliation process that should be fairly swift but should also highlight the, the need for justice when it comes to excesses and crimes that have been committed against people, whereas maybe when it comes to uh, monetary compensation and issues that can relieve that, that those conflicts quick, quickly enough, uh, they can take strides and they need international support, they need international expertise in this. And lastly, the ability really just to help serve uh, the, the, the population of Libya very quickly with a stable environment and with services and, and with a strategic uh, uh, eye on the development of, of the country. Uh, Libya is a very small country with, with vast resources and it could be a very successful experiment when it comes to um, uh, in, ensuring its development and its moving forward. But you need to have the institutions, you need to have uh, that are capable of doing that. You need the, 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 the monitoring and the transparency and the, and the ability to put in place uh, many of the uh, structures that, unfortunately, Gaddafi has decimated over 42 years and has essentially made the country uh, void of. So those are challenges, those are you know, priorities, but they, they, they themselves pose challenges. I think, I think looking at the uh, greater uh, uh, um, scene, while we can maintain a keen interest in Libya and have certain strategic goals in it, I think we need to be vested in seeing this to be a successful experiment. And inshallah, God willing, we hope that that will take place. Thank you.
But last, we're going to hear from Dr. Michelle Dunn. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks very much. So I'm going to speak about uh, Egypt. And um, it's late in the day. I'm not going to talk about the history of the U.S.-Egyptian relationship. I assume you know about it and, uh, or about the Egyptian Revolution. I, I assume you've heard about that, too. So uh, what I'm going to talk about is what's going on right now and what I foresee going on over the next few months. Um, because I, I really am very concerned about what's going on in Egypt right now and the trajectory of the Egyptian transition. Egypt carried out kind of a half-revolution in February uh, in which uh, these very large popular protests did succeed in bringing down uh, President Mubarak. But what the protesters did was turn over the keys to the Egyptian military, who, uh, as you know, are now in authority in the country and say they are carrying out a democratic transition. And indeed, parliamentary elections are scheduled to begin, and I, I think they will begin uh, at the end of November. Uh, but it's, it, the fact that uh, the military is in control in Egypt lends a very different character to what's going on there than, for example, uh, Tunisia, where the military also sided with the protesters and against the, uh, and against the ruler, but then more or less stepped out of the picture and let civilians take over the, the transition, uh, or in Libya, which of course became uh, an armed rebellion. In, uh, so in, in Egypt, um, the, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, the SCAF, says that it wants to turn over control back to civilian authorities. And I think this is true to some extent. But what they seem to be doing is they want to turn over legislative authority executive authority they uh, seem to want to hold on to longer. It's not really clear how long, but I think there are troubling signs that they want to hold on to it long enough to ensure that the Egyptian military will have not only the role it had during the Mubarak era, but an enhanced political role, more control than they had in the past. Uh, for that reason, they are putting off the scheduling of a presidential election. The, the uh, SCAF has said that once both parliamentary elections and a presidential election are held, then they completely turn over authority. But that they have refused so far to schedule the presidential election. They're saying that first the parliamentary election should be held. And I won't go into all the details, but Egypt is going to have extraordinarily long and complicated parliamentary elections that are going to take place uh, continuously from the end of November to the beginning of March. Uh, and then, uh, then they will undertake the writing and passage of a new constitution. And according to the SCAF, at least only after that would a presidential election be held. Uh, the, um, the, most of the political forces in Egypt, almost all of them at this point, are calling on the SCAF to schedule a presidential election, schedule a date certain for a presidential election, maybe a month or two after all the parliamentary elections are completed and before the writing of a constitution. So why does the, why does the military want to put off the, uh, the presidential election? I, they keep floating in the, uh, in the press a number of 
of different trial balloons about what kind of military role they're looking for. Perhaps something written into the Constitution that describes the military as the protector of the democratic order and gives them an implicit right to intervene in politics in the future. Uh, perhaps some kind of national security council in which the elected president would then be uh, not above, but part of a ruling body that would also include unelected military leaders. Uh, perhaps freedom from civilian oversight, perhaps freedom from parliamentary oversight of the military budget, perhaps the fact that the elected president would not be able to appoint military leaders. There are also floating trial balloons about the acceptability of a military uh, person, either as someone who's currently a senior military officer or re recently past military officer being elected as the next president. So, I, you know, it's not clear whether any of this is going to stick, but it seems quite obvious. I, I just came from a trip to Egypt a week ago. It was quite obvious to Egyptians that there was some sort of indirect process of negotiation going on here where the military is trying to secure its future political role, not only its economic interests, which we all know are extensive, but its future political role, and that they were not willing to com to actually set the date for a presidential election, the date by which they will have to turn over authority until this is worked out. So why should we worry about this? Um, is this a problem? Uh, I, I would posit that it is a problem. Uh, first of all, it's certainly a problem if, you, if you're thinking that Egypt is in a democratic transition. Uh, because if, um, as we know, in democracies, there's civilian oversight of the military and that elected civilians are, are over the military. Now, everyone knows the Egyptian military is very powerful. And it's going to be very powerful for a long time. But I would say that creation of new, uh, another military president or creation of new formal uh, political roles for the military will really, you know, encumber that process of eventual, eventual civilian oversight of the military. Will make it much more difficult. Uh, I would also say that if the military does continue in authority, then there are a number of problems that we can see coming, and we can see some of them already emerging in the way the military has managed things since it has been in, uh, in power. We've seen some uh, very troubling sectarian protests uh, in which a good number of people have been killed, and this is clearly an issue that the military is, is not handling well. Uh, we've seen poor management of the economy, uh, and there's, you know, if you if you speak to business people or uh, economists in Egypt, they will tell you that until there is a, a clear uh, political timetable and a reestablishment uh, of the rule of law and so forth, and and settling down of the security situation, the economy is not going to improve. We've seen a very bad security uh, environment in Egypt and a very poor handling of the need for police reform. There have been very pol big police demonstrations in the last few days uh, in Egypt. So there are a number of problems that, that we can see coming. Uh, and um, I guess I'll, I'll just leave you with a, with a provocative question. Uh, do we want to see Pakistan on the Nile? That's, you know, it's, it's something, I think, to 
to think about, and it leaves the United States with some difficult choices. We have a close relationship with the Egyptian military. Um, you know, uh, the U.S. Can, can say at this point, well, what can we really do? How much influence do we really have? But Egyptians look at the tens of billions that we have given uh, the Egyptian military that we are continuing to give, and they can't believe that we really have no influence over this. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Mann. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with um, some questions for Dr. Omesh, actually. We have, we've had a number that are in a similar vein, and I think, Dr. Omesh, you painted a very hopeful picture, one that you know, was very forward-looking, but I think uh, some of those in our audience uh, have some serious concerns that, that they're wondering about. Um, one is the, the concerns about the human rights violations that we've heard about from the NTC forces in Libya, and a number of them are also asking questions about um, Mahmoud Jabril's endorsement of instituting um, Islamic elements back into the legal code and making it the basis of legislation, just not one of the basis, but the basis of legislation. So if you could address that. Okay. It was uh, actually uh, Ustaz uh, Mustafa Abdel Jalil, not Mahmoud Jibril, who actually made that announcement in the liberation um, um, speech. But I think, I think for anybody who looks at the Libyan uh, situation and think otherwise, meaning that it's fraught with potential scenarios where difficulties will arise, I think will be uh, uh, superficial. I agree with you. I just tend to be a Libyan-American with a lot of optimism and a lot of hope. So that may have come across, but the fact is that I, I highlighted issues that I believe will be, uh, you know, very good determinants as to how we move forward. I'm not as concerned about the human rights issue, not to belittle the issue. In fact, we are, you know, the recipients of, 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 of its abuses for many, many years. And so the Libyans, um, in fact, I think if we look at the revolution over eight months, if you look at many highlights of how it was managed in light of what we know of bitterness and, 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 and just a legacy of, of, of uh, you know, massive abuses over the Libyan people. I actually, I'm actually encouraged, and I, I can take it case by case, including, unfortunately, the final episode of, of, of uh, the brutality that was committed against Gaddafi. Nobody can uh, condone any of that violence. So you can say all you want about understanding it, but it's not to be condoned. And I hope that the TNC will be uh, transparent in bringing forth an investigation and such. But the fact is that I think overall, the embracing of folks that have even committed, uh, you know, capital crimes uh, has been evident in the sense that everybody is not interested in any further violence, and I think the commitment is genuine. Now, on the other hand, I think the, the comments that were raised about the role of Sharia, as, as my colleague Mr. Ayashi mentioned, and, you know, the fact is that Islam is going to become part and parcel of a lot of the changes we see, and it behooves us truly to start to think along how we can have a, a arguably even a, a different paradigm or, or a way of looking at how things come forth. But I think specific to the Libyan uh, case, I think what Mr. Abdel Jalil was doing was creating some reassurances of his audience, if you may, that Islam will not be out of the picture. I don't think that it was a call for him to actually institute 
you know, a, a theocracy of sorts or, or to, to say this. The statement of saying that the Sharia, uh, the Islamic Sharia is, uh, the, so, uh, is, is the major you know, source of legislation is something that we see very commonly in our lexicon in the region and we actually see it in the constitutions of other nations as well. Now he did put an end to a debate that was happening which is, is it a source or is it the source? And in fact is, he wanted to side with those who are saying this, this, the, the source. However, I think, I think the, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, Mr. Abdul Jalil's style of leadership and, and, uh, and, uh, and the structure we have in place kind of yields to these, I wouldn't call them mistakes, but you know, uh, situations that, that do happen. They're not reflective, I think, of the process that is due to take place and hopefully will take place in a very um, uh, deciding and, 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 and decisive and a meaningful way. Thank you. And just to uh, continue on that theme, turning to Tunisia, <laughs> we had a number of questions about uh, Al-Nahida. Um, one person's wondering that it seems to be a very rich party and where did the money come from? Um, another is talking about, because Tunisia had such a long history of being so secular, um, is, how is this going to play out? And you know, I know you said that the um, Al-Nahida was very moderate and, and, that's, and they've been likening themselves to AKP in Turkey, but do you think, a lot of people are wondering, that they have a chance to become less AKP-like, shall I say, diplomatically? Thank you. Um, yes, uh, Anada has um, had money, I mean, to spend for the elections indeed, and uh, many people wondered where does this money come from. Uh, I think that, that helped them uh, in, in the elections, undoubtedly. They were able to cover the whole territory of the Tunisian Republic, as they say, uh, unlike the other more secular party with more financial difficulties to do that. More, um, where does the money come from? I mean, there are rumors, I, I don't know, um, per se. I have, the rumors say that the money comes from, from the Gulf. But some rumors uh, contend that uh, there's uh, some Saudi financing of that, not Iranian. Keep in mind, the, the, Anada is Sunni, it's not Shia. So this is where allegedly the money would come from. I mean, it's, uh, the, the, the concern was that the money uh, comes from, uh, from foreign sources, which is illegal according to Tunisian law. You cannot run on elections uh, with the funds, funds uh, funded by, from abroad. Uh, secularism, is, is are there any risk for Anada to impose a, a an Islamist uh, agenda or to go, f uh, I think another relies less on utopia to establish an Islamic state in Tunisia. The people don't want it. It is a conservative party. It's a, sometimes on some issues it's an ultra-conservative party, uh, and, but also has a, a liberal, economic liberal program. Um, they, uh, they were calling for return to order. They say that they will answer properly and adequately the deficit in moral values prevailing in the country. They will be efficient in combating corruption and on and on. And that, they did benefit from, uh, people trusted them and voted for them. And, and I, I, I don't see, uh, for the time being, well, one never knows, I don't think that they will prevail eventually to impose a, an Islamic state in Tunisia or, or as I said, roll back women's rights or uh, 
Tunisia is very open to the, to the rest of the world, especially to Europe. Uh, there are many tourists who come every year to Tunisia, and that's a major source of, uh, of uh, income for the government, uh, etc. Uh, they, uh, they will need to keep that. Um, and then themselves, they said, we are very conscious of the fact that this is not Afghanistan. We're not Tunisian, not Afghani. We are that different. <laughs> they have a history of secularism, indeed, for so long. So, for, yeah, for the time being, I, I, I think they will keep working. They, the, the challenges ahead they, they are huge. I mean, I don't know if they will be able to meet uh, the, the people's expectations, especially in, in, in matters of, uh, uh, regarding the economy. The economic situation is, is very serious. Uh, the unemployment rate, uh, rate has grown for, to 40 percent, which is huge, of course. Uh, the growth rate, I think, is about 0.3 percent now. So the, the challenge, are, so they will need to, 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 if they want to be efficient, they will need to um, to govern with uh, with the alliance, with the coalition, with secular parties, undoubtedly for for the foreseeable future, at least. Okay. Thank you. Welcome, um, Chris. If we could turn to uh, Yemen, and then I want to pose a follow-up question on Syria. Um, this participant says that Yemen seems to be sticking to the Egyptian model, I guess, in terms of peaceful protests for the most part amongst the, the people, not the, I think, the, those that have left the military. Will it, move, will it have to move to adopt the Libyan model of military confrontation? Uh, as I said in my remarks, I think, frankly, the, the popular forces uh, that started this current uh, political confrontation are now almost fundamentally overshadowed by uh, the old guard uh, in their 30-year conflict uh, that's been going on. Um, I, I, don't, um, I don't want to dismiss the concerns and security of those protesters and, and people. Um, uh, I'm, I'm of the belief that ultimately the decisive factors uh, in a Yemeni situation will be uh, the decisions that are made by um, a handful of, of very powerful people, um, and, and not necessarily through, um, you know, popular uh, armed action in the street. Uh, I, I don't think that would be decisive in this situation. And then on um, Syria, this one's a bit tricky. <laughs> um, well, do you think that Bashar Assad will step down, that they'll be able to get an agreement from him to step down, or will he have to be forced to be stepped down? Hmm. That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I share the belief that long-term, um, the, the Assad regime's control of Syria is not sustainable. Um, but I'm not going to join the ranks of those who are predicting when that might happen or on what terms. I think the, the – I, I mentioned this in my remarks. I think the troubling thing, um, primarily for Syrians, uh, but also for those concerned about what's happening in Syria, is the, the – the slow slide towards a, a Libyan model, um, and for two reasons: one, because of the immediate security consequences of that, um, you know, the the use of armed force, whether it's by uh, defecting military personnel or uh, armed um, Islamist or, or secular groups, um, presents uh, an immediate security. It, it amplifies the, the security tension uh, and makes the likelihood of retaliation and use of force by the, the government, um, more likely, not less likely. Um, and then secondly, from international legitimacy um, perspective, uh, you know, the, the Syrian opposition, uh, like the Libyan opposition, is confronting a, um, 
uh, all but insurmountable task here. Uh, and in order to prevail, um, it needs to maintain uh, its image as um, uh, a legitimate spokesperson for all uh, the Syrian people. Um, it, it, and in doing so, being able to contrast the tactics being used by the Syrian uh, government against them um, is a very useful tool, uh, particularly uh, as, we, as we remain in the stage where uh, the Security Council has not yet made a decision uh, about what steps need to be taken. And then turning to Dr. Dunn, um, we have a question about how do you see Egypt's military managing foreign policy, especially with respect to Iran, Israel, and Palestine? Uh, early on in the um, Egyptian um, transition, shortly after the revolution, we saw, um, regarding Iran, obviously, we saw an initiative to, uh, I would say, regularize relations with Iran. Um, there, were, there, there have been initiatives over the years to improve relations uh, between Egypt and Iran, and they've always faltered because of Egyptians' suspicion and President Mubarak's suspicion of uh, what, uh, what Iran's agenda inside of Egypt might be. And so um, we, we saw an initiative, and there were, there were several groups of Egyptians who went and visited Iran and so forth. Uh, and then um, there were, I, I think that Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states expressed a lot of concern, and we saw a couple of trips by the Egyptian foreign minister and prime minister to the Gulf, and we saw some very large pledges coming from uh, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and Qatar to, uh, to Egypt. And then we've seen the whole issue of a rapprochement with Iran quieting down. So, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, we'll, we'll see where it, where it goes from there, but it's gotten very quiet on that front. Regarding, um, regarding Palestine, um, you know, Egypt has, has taken up some of its, uh, the initiatives it had before on Palestine and brought them to fruition, brokering a Fatah-Hamas agreement and now uh, brokering the exchange of Gilad Shalit for uh, Palestinian prisoners. I think what's so, it, these things are not really different from what Egypt did in the past. For example, the content of the Fatah-Hamas agreement was largely the same content that had been there in an agreement brokered uh, you know, quite a while ago, a couple of years ago. But what was different this time, I think, was that Egypt proceeded on these things um, without really taking into account how the United States felt about them. Because the earlier Fatah-Hamas agreement earlier on, basically the Egyptians backed off because the United States asked them to. So um, I, I think, you know, we're going to see an Egyptian foreign policy, whether it's, to be honest with you, whether it's the military in control or even when there is a civilian government in control, you're going to see a foreign policy that is, uh, a little bit more responsive to Egyptian popular uh, opinion and I think a little bit more independent of the United States. And then I have a couple questions here for um, Rhonda. One is uh, 
How can Western companies, particularly those outside of defense and security operations, be convinced that it's safe to do business in Libya? And another um, is simply asking, you talked about the um, hot, cold marriage, and how is Britain going to fare now, considering that Tony Blair had a hot marriage with Gaddafi? <laughs> okay, well, um, with respect to the security situation, of course, um, companies um, need to take a look at what the internal political situation is and do a security assessment. Um, I know that there's private companies that have their own security personnel that go into the country uh, and take a look at the situation, travel throughout the country and make an assessment. I mean, a lot is going to depend on the confidence that the governing leaders in the Transitional Council reflect. Um, a lot is going to depend on uh, the removal of arms that are presently there. Um, and that I know certainly the United States has sent in a team of consultants to try and help with some of the removal of those weapons. Um, so I think the assessment has got to come from certainly the private sector. Um, you know, the United States government, of course, does their own uh, assessments of the security situation. And so you'll see a variety um, of travel warnings, travel guidance uh, with respect to Libya and some of the countries in North Africa that are going through these transitions. So, you know, always security is of utmost importance because you want to be able to protect your, your, uh, your employees. Um, but I think it will be a little bit easier to see what is exactly going on there. I will tell you that prior to the revolution, um, the security situation was actually quite good in Libya. You had many Western companies that were working there and uh, generally, generally very little threats to any of the foreign um, employees that were working there. So the risk was, was actually quite low prior to the revolution. Um, with respect to the UK and Tony Blair, um, I mean, you know, there are individual relationships certainly that were had, but I would just say this with respect to private businesses, relationships with particular countries or relationships with private companies from particular countries. Old habits die hard. Uh, many of the individuals who may be in a position to make decisions on business contracts in Libya may be some of the very same people who were in that position prior to this revolution. That being said, from my experience, politics trumps everything. Certainly, the way that business was done in Libya prior to the revolution was there was very high emphasis placed on the relationship between Libya and the particular country. So using the UK as an example, the UK was held in very high favor. Uh, because of a variety of efforts that the UK did, including, as I mentioned, reaching out initially to the Libyans and negotiating what was ultimately a very fruitful negotiation in which Libya gave up their WMDs. You saw a, quite a strong relationship with some of the other European countries, including France, and the way that you saw it reflected, and Italy, the way you saw it reflected was the rewarding of contracts. I mean, pure and simple. The cold marriage between the U.S. and Libya, you saw that reflected too, in that time and time again, U.S. companies either lost out on major contracts or never got to the point at which they were considered. So um, it was a difficult environment. I think it will be better, but I do think there is a renewed appreciation, as I mentioned, for the United States. I mean, the fact of the matter is we are the best at what we do. We have the best technology. We have the best teachers. We have the best implementers. And, you know, I would hope that certainly the political situation between the U.S. and Libya is better, and that will be reflected in the business environment in the future. Well, thank you very much. I want to thank our panelists.